I think it's appropriate to say that there is a sense of anticipation in the air as Jesus approaches Jerusalem. He's been in the city of, of the town of Jericho, not too far from Jerusalem. The sense in the crowd of those who have gathered around of what surely is about to transpire as Jesus is making his way slowly but deliberately to Jerusalem with a, a large de- degree of expectation. And even it says in verse 11 of our text that supposing that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And then in the midst of that, Jesus seeks to dampen, to dampen a misguided enthusiasm. It's good that they be enthused about the person, the work of Christ. The problem is they have misunderstood and they're thinking their anticipation is misguided and what they are, are expecting to take place. And so Jesus seeks to dampen it, to correct their thinking by telling them a parable. And that's where we come to today, this parable of some call the parable of money uses, some call the parable of the nobleman. Beginning in verse 11, going through verse 27 of chapter of Luke chapter 19. And again, you'll see many similarities to the text that we just read in Matthew, but uh, it's clearly a distinct parable that Jesus gives here. <clears throat> While they were listening to these things, and of course the things here would be what's just transpired in, in Jericho with the account of Zacchaeus. They were listening to these things. Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that those slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him, so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, and you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you. Because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Some of you are familiar with the Jewish historian Josephus. He's a well-known writer of, of Jewish history. And he gives an account of an event that took place around the year 4 B.C. And the year 4 B.C. was when Herod the Great died. And when Herod the Great died, he had willed most of his kingdom to his eldest son, Archelaus. 
For Archelaus, rather than presumptuously assuming the throne that his father Herod had held, he wisely plans to take a trip to Rome to receive this position officially from Augustus himself. Before, however, Archelaus is able to, de- to depart on this journey to Rome, there's a large group of rioters that, that riot during the Passover. And finally, to squelch this, this riot, Archelaus sends in his military forces and there are 3,000 casualties. So Archelaus makes his journey to Rome to receive his kingdom officially from Augustus. But he is also followed by a deputation of Jews who travel to Rome to oppose his appointment. Augustus, in fact, does confirm the essential provisions of Herod's will. However, Archelaus is confirmed only as an ethnarch, a ruler of the people, a title which is much inferior to that of a king. And so the result of that is that Archelaus treats the Jews and the Samaritans that are under him quite barbarically in resentment to them. And in fact, eventually he is removed from his position. That historical event has many parallels here to this parable that Jesus gives. And one writer has even suggested that since Jesus is here in Jericho, that where Archelaus built his own royal palace, there would be a store that was very familiar to the people here. Of Archelaus going to receive his kingdom, a deputation of his enemies going behind him to to request that he not be given to, to oppose his appointment, and then the results of that. The significant in this parallel that we find here is this nobleman, this one who is well-born, going to a distant country. Certainly be uh, portrayed in that event of Archelaus going to, to the city of Rome. A nobleman going to a distant country to receive his kingdom and then what transpires in his kingdom, in his, the place that he is to, to be appointed in his absence. And we see here Jesus' appropriate counter to the, to the misguided hopes, the misguided expectations of those who are, are following after him. So here is Jesus telling them that he is going to a distant place. And so with that sense of going to a distant place, it's a given that there will be a significant amount of time involved here. That then... He will return. So Jesus does, in fact, make it clear that he secures his kingdom. That's clear. He goes and he receives his kingdom in this far place. But it's not revealed in its glory here on earth as as the Jews of his day had anticipated would be the case once the Messiah arrives and certainly once the Messiah comes into the city of Jerusalem. And you know, there's not a whole lot of difference for the people of that day than for us because here we are almost 2,000 years removed and the kingdom of God has not come in its glory yet for us either. We still anticipate, we recognize that the kingdom of Christ has been established. Jesus Christ rules. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ has already been given the name above every other name. Jesus Christ has received all authority from His Father who is in heaven. Jesus Christ's kingdom is now. But we also recognize that the kingdom of Christ has not come and revealed itself in all of its glory, all its physical representation, as we anticipate will one day be the case when he does return. So, 
in light of what we consider in this parable here of this nobleman who goes to this far, this far country. And the issue becomes, what transpires in his absence? It sets before us our responsibility to consider what are we to be doing in anticipation of Christ's return. What is our duty in this day, in this in-between period of the kingdom of Christ in its inauguration and the kingdom of Christ in its consummation? How do we live here now? And so Jesus here gives a parable that I think helps us to to consider ways that we might prepare, that we are called to prepare for His glorious appearing. First of all, we see that in life that we acknowledge, and not just merely acknowledge, but we affirm His reign. We acknowledge and we delight in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we have Jesus with this self-descriptive imagery that He's using here. As he's speaking about this nobleman going to this far country, who's he speaking of? It's pretty clear he's speaking of himself. He's speaking of himself, this one, this nobleman, one who is well born, one who is rightly expected to receive a kingdom. It was rightly expected that the son of Herod the Great, the eldest son, Archelaus, would receive the larger portion of Herod's own kingdom. There was not much in the way of debate or consideration of that. It was assumed that's what would take place. And in this parable, he speaks here of his slaves. Those who he has called in verse 13. He called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten minors and said to them, Do business with this until I come back. He's called them to labor in his absence. But also note, he's he's given them the necessary resources, hasn't he? He's entrusted it to them. You take this that I have given to you and you labor, you do business with this until I return. That's the one hand, his slaves But there's also those that are represented as clearly being his enemies. Verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And again, the parallel, the historical parallel would be the Jews going to to Rome on the heels of Archelaus and saying, we do not want this man to rule over us. So in this typical form of Jesus, this typical place yourself in this story, parabolic form that Jesus uses, which I think is is so very natural, isn't it? And so many of the stories and the parables that we consider of Jesus, it's when you read those, the point seems to be, and where do you fit in this? Where do you find yourself in this parable in this story so Jesus going to a distant country Jesus going to the presence of God the Father Jesus ascending into heaven Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father he does in fact receive his kingdom Jesus Christ is given Paul tells us he has received that name which is above every other name Adonai Lord That's His name. He is the Lord. He is God's appointed ruler over the kingdoms of the earth. So the question that would be thrust upon them in listening that day would be, so are you a willing and glad servant of this nobleman who has gone into a far country? Or are you a defiant enemy? Which are you? servant or an enemy becomes very clear in this parable that Jesus Jesus assures them he assures them yes I do receive my kingdom you're right in thinking that 
Surely this is the Messiah and he's going to establish his kingdom. And the parable that he gives here affirms that. This nobleman goes to this far country, receives his kingdom, and is going to return. In fact, he does. And the assumption being that he has received the appointment. He has received his kingdom. So he assures them of that. But he also indicates that the kingdom of God is not in all of its glory revealed at this time. So just be assured, dear people, you're not, you're not victims of the great deception. You've not been deceived and fooled and tricked into thinking Jesus must be the Messiah. If you've come to that conclusion, you're right. He is the Messiah. However, there is a, a time period of delay. There is a delay to be considered here. So how do you live in that delay? How shall you live when what you've anticipated to be imminent, to be right around the corner and it's delayed? How do you live? To have such anticipation thrust upon you and to have a large measure of that, that hope and enthusiasm dashed because it's not going to be like you thought. I was a, I mentioned it several times that I was a school teacher for a number, for 11 years in a Christian school. We used the ACE curriculum, which enables you to use one classroom for multi-aged children. You had little offices around the exterior of the walls. And so basically going around and assisting children, students as they needed assistance. So we had at first second graders up through high school in one room. And it functions fine. You just have to be ready to operate on an elementary level and a high school level down around the corner. Well, because of the, the size, it was a small school. We never got above 70 students and didn't desire to be. But because of the, the size of the room and the size of the school, we eventually had to break some, some groups off. We didn't have enough room in one room for all the students. And so we started breaking this off. And the first break off was we took our second and third graders and put them in an adjoining room. To the to the to the large room, and the large room was called the large, the big learning center. That's a technical name, isn't it? And so we were in the second and third grade classroom, adjoining the what was then the fourth through twelfth. There were some scattered grades in between. Well, I was appointed to be the supervisor of the second and third. Did that for a couple of years, and had. My third grade students who lived in great anticipation of moving to the big learning center. Well, because again of just the breakout of how the ages fell, we had to break out again. And so we moved the second and third graders to another room, moved the fourth and fifth grade to the room that I had had with the second and third. And guess what? These students had Mr. McReynolds. For two more years, fourth and fifth in this classroom and not going to the big learning center. So, you know, they bear with it for fourth year, fifth year. Time to go to the big learning center. Well, because as things grew and things fell out, we had to break out again. And so this time we broke out second, third, and fourth in one room and just added one, moved one grade up, fifth and sixth. In one room. So guess what? These students who had been under my supervision since the second grade were going to have me again for the sixth grade after everything in between. Actually, we became pretty close in that period of time. <laughs> but can you imagine just the sense of anticipation? Just the sense of anticipation that we're going up to the to the big place where the big kids are and and you have that hope dashed after your third grade year. But, you know, third graders get over things pretty quick. So you get to the end of your fifth grade year and you have it dashed once again because we're moving the sixth grade down or into that room. And then it was just with bated breath. They anticipated what's well, going to happen next year. They went. 
How do you live? How do you live with what's a dashing of anticipation when it's, it's not what you thought it's going to be? To live faithfully. We're called to live, and certainly those in Christ today likewise, as He gives this parable to, to redirect their misconceptions. Yes, the kingdom of God is here, in fact, in Christ. But it's not going to be what you're imagining. It's not going to be what you are thinking. So live Live your day, day after day, acknowledging and affirming the rule of Christ that although it does not appear in the way that you think it would, or you think that it should, to rest assured that Christ does rule, that God's Messiah does in fact rule. And so all the things that you look at that you don't understand, and it's clear from looking back a couple of Sundays ago where Jesus told them what was going to transpire in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 and following there, of, of what was going to happen being handed over to the Gentiles. And it's clear from verse 34, the disciples, they didn't get it, they didn't understand it, they did not comprehend it. So He's trying to, to prepare them. It's not going to be. But at the same time, don't lose hope. When you see things transpiring that you think this cannot possibly be the kingdom of God. This cannot possibly be what happens to the Messiah, can it? The word is to them to rest assured God's will is being done. God's kingdom is in fact coming. So to live acknowledging that's to be the case. Acknowledging that He does reign. He does rule. He does not rule in this visible, in this physical sense. But He rules in such a way that is genuine and is real. As He rules and He reigns from heaven. See, a mark of the true people of God is that we delight in the rule and the reign of Christ. To delight that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that we can proclaim with full confidence this day, Jesus Christ is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. And that we're willing to affirm what the psalmist says, how blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. To acknowledge that God's Messiah has come in Jesus Christ. This is the true God. To receive this one. As our Savior. To see to see this one. And to receive him as our Redeemer. Recognizing that I need a redemption from my sins. I need more than just a political root. I need more than just someone to come and to set up an earthly kingdom and to conquer all of his enemies. If he comes and he sets up such a kingdom and he, and he crushes all of his enemies under his feet, woe be unto me. Because I'm an enemy. I have sinned against this one. And apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sins. Let's own this one and to be thankful that He has come and that He has established His kingdom as He did in the manner in which He did. Coming to give His life, to lay down His life. To rejoice in who He is, what He has done. To acknowledge that Jesus Christ is not just the ruler of the world, but He is the ruler of my own heart. He's conquered this heart. This place, this place where sin once prevailed, sin once ruled, He's come and He's conquered it. This is the one that we gladly acknowledge, we gladly affirm He is our Lord. And we marvel at the gracious privilege of having of seeing this, don't we? The gracious privilege that it is of, of loving the rule of Christ. Because there are far more in the world today who do not love His rule. There are far more that would be in that delegation that would say of Christ, we do not want this man to reign over us. 
And it is a work of God's grace that any one of us can say, Jesus Christ is my Lord. Jesus Christ rules in this heart. And to give thanks to Him for that, for His grace in us. So in life, we acknowledge and we affirm, we delight in His reign. But also we see in labor that we anticipate His return. In labor, we anticipate His return. Christ, Jesus here portrays in this parable of this nobleman who has entrusted to his slaves a work. He's taken the resource. He called ten of his slaves and he gave them ten miners and said to them, do business with this until I come back. And likewise, the parallel for that would be that Christ has entrusted his people. Christ has entrusted the church. Christ has entrusted every believer with a great work, just as these servants have been entrusted with one mina each. The instruction to them was to do business until I return, literally translated, to do business while I am coming. In my absence, until I come back. And such an instruction at least has the implication that with this return, there's going to be an accounting. It's not just, I'm going to be going a while and I'm going to come back and we'll pick up where we left off. No, there is the entrusting of these, of this, these small funds, these, these minus that he gives to the servants there. He says, do business with these. Until I come back. And then we have it affirmed in verse 15. That when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. There is an accounting. It's implied by what he says in his going, but it's affirmed what he says here in verse 15. There is a day of an accounting. So the ten... Slaves have been entrusted each, evidently with a mina each. We only have here an account of, of three once the, the nobleman returns. And I think the reason being that it would be necessary to go through and give ten. But these three would certainly be representative or typical of the other seven that are not mentioned specifically. And the first two come, the first two come and one brings a return of, of tenfold. One mina has brought ten and one returns with five. One mina has brought back five. Verses 16, the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. In verse 18, the second came saying, your mina, Master, has made five minas more. And both are commended Both are rewarded as faithful. Verse 17. He said to them, Well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in very little thing. You are to be an authority over ten cities. And then, although the the words of praise are not the same, the, the one is rewarded so that we assume that the commendation will be the same in verse 19. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. So what's the point here? What's the point that Jesus is driving home with this? It's this. That His servants, His people, are called to labor. Are called to labor faithfully for the cause of His kingdom. To labor faithfully in the context of His kingdom. Anticipating the day of His return. To labor faithfully with that which He has entrusted to us. Well, what has Christ entrusted to us? What do we have that God has given to us that we are called to be faithful? First of all, we have the enabling of His presence. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, that it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Hence, we have no excuse for sitting back and say, more was demanded of me than I could possibly do. 
that we have entrusted to us the enabling presence and power of God. God working in us. So God gives to us the resources that we need. You need to live, as we've considered in our Sunday school class, to live a righteous and a holy life. He gives you the resources that you need. He gives Himself. That it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. He gives to us the gifts of grace. 1 Peter chapter 4. If you want to turn there very briefly. 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse 10. As each one has received a special gift... Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we have grace gifts that God has entrusted to us. That we are to utilize as stewards. To be faithful in using these gifts that He gives to us as His people. Gifts of grace. We have also been trusted, according to Paul in First First Corinthians, chapter. I'm sorry, Second Corinthians, chapter two. I'll get it right. Second Corinthians, chapter five. Second Corinthians, chapter five, verses nineteen and following, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and what He has committed to us. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation so that we have, as a result, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what have we had entrusted to us according to that? A ministry of reconciliation. The message of reconciliation. That God is calling men to be reconciled unto Himself. That's been entrusted to us. And so the response in our hearts ought to be, as it was here in Paul's words in verse 20, to recognize that we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And certainly there is the... There is the particular gifts that he speaks of there, Paul, as an apostle. There's the unique gifts of of pastors and teachers within the context of the church. But there is a sense in which all of God's people have been entrusted to proclaim the message of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us. God has given that into your hands. It's not as though we sit back and, what do I do? Proclaim the message of reconciliation that men need to be reconciled with God. To proclaim that God has made provision for reconciliation unto Himself. And that is through the giving of His Son. The payment of for your sins. So that you might be right with God. That has been entrusted to us. And so as this nobleman, he entrusts these miners which he which he refers to as a small thing, and they are, relatively speaking. Some debate exactly how much it is, but it's not believed to be a very large sum. And folks, what what treasures we have been given that we have had entrusted to us, God Himself living within us, that He might accomplish His work in us, God at work in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure, the gifts of grace that God works into us by the Spirit, spiritual gifts, if you want to call them that, entrusted to us and called to use those gifts for the glory of God and for the edification of the saints within the context of the local church. And the message of reconciliation, the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, calling men and women to Christ, calling them to repentance, calling them to faith, calling them to reconciliation with God. It's been entrusted to us. So what are we to do with these things? We are to labor. We are to utilize these things in anticipation of His return. Folks, there is a day when Christ shall return and we shall give an account of what we have done and what we have failed to do with that which God has entrusted to us. To all stand before God and to to give an account the gifts 
were different, were differ. The abilities were differ. The results were differ. Here we had these three slaves examples. The first two who go and do well. One, they're given the same amount at the beginning. One comes back with tenfold. One comes back with fivefold. There's no rebuke to the one who comes back second. Or why do you do what your brother did? There's no rebuke there. Dif- different gifts. Different abilities. Different results. But faithfulness is that which is commended in the people of God. Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. As being a servant of Christ. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. There's another stewardship. (laughs) The mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy, or many translations, one be found faithful. And listen to what Paul says. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you, those who are critical of Paul. I don't lose sleep over your criticisms. That's what he's saying. It's a very small thing. Or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I'm not by this acquitted. Not only am I not overly concerned about the critics who come at me, those who have the voice of criticism, nor am I acquitted by my own conscience. I may make an evaluation, determine, hey, I'm doing pretty good. That doesn't mean I'm innocent. Stewardship is not measured by the criticism of others. Stewardship is not measured by the acquitting voice of our own conscience. Think what he says. The one who examines me is the Lord. Here is the one before whom I stand. And this is the one before whom I will give an account. And I want to hear the words of Christ. I'm not concerned about the critics who come at me. I'm not even concerned about my own ability to justify my own righteousness. That doesn't matter either. The one voice that matters is the voice of Christ. To hear His voice. And so He says in verse 5, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Wait until the Lord comes. And see what He has to say about how faithful you are, how faithful your brother has been, how faithful I am. Wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now there is a voice of praise that matters, isn't it? A voice of praise from God to hear the words of Christ to you. Well done, you good and faithful servant. So we're called here to labor in anticipation of his return. In other words, we are to apply ourselves with the gifts that God has given to us, with the responsibilities that we have to apply ourselves with the realization that one day he will return and I will give an account to him. And I need to be ready for that. You know what Paul says to the saints at Corinth to wait till the Lord returns? You know, part of me wants to sit back and go, whoa. I think I like the the tribunal of of my fellow men. (laughs) Criticism that may come. Or either tribunal of my own conscience where I can justify myself. But the, the reality is I'm going to stand before Christ. And I am to be laboring here, anticipating His return. It shouldn't be just a fearful thing. However, the reality is it shall be that we all stand before Christ. 
And that we ought to labor with that reality in our minds. Do you live to labor in anticipation of his return? Just as these slaves, these first two, they took the resources that had been entrusted to them, anticipating their, their master's return. And when the master returns, here comes the first one. Look, master, what's happened? You gave me one, I give you ten. And the second comes and says, you gave me five. I, you gave me one, and I give you five. And they are rewarded for that. But they labored with a sense of anticipation. That there one day, one day, he said that he would return. And he will. And to give an account. So let us labor as such. Those that have been trusted with the treasures of our Lord. Who are now called to minister in His stead. We're here to minister in the place. In the absence of Christ. In the absence of His physical body. Of His visible kingdom. To minister in His place. With His resources. His grace. His spirit. His gospel message. But let our highest motive not be just the fear of one day standing and giving account before Him. Let that highest motive be out of love for Him and anticipation of that joyous day when we shall see Him. To labor for Him as a labor of love for Him. Anticipating that He will return. Labor with the hope of hearing the words of Jesus. Well done. Well done. And finally... In love, in preparing for the, His glorious appearing, in love we announce His revenge. Once again, as in so many of the stories of Jesus, so much of the teaching of Jesus, we're reminded that when Christ returns, that it's not going to be an all-joyous occasion. That it will not be great and joyful day for all parties. And here in this parable, the nobleman deals with, with resistance and opposition to his rule and to, on two fronts. The first is in verses 20 through 23 of this third servant who comes and is typical and representative of the worthless slave. Verse 20, he says, Another came, Master, here is your mina which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're an exacting man and you take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he says to him in verse 22, By your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. You know that I'm an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reap what I did not sow. Then why didn't you put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. So here is this slave who takes the mina and he does nothing with it. And then when the master does return, this one, he's unprepared. And it's the reasoning that he gives, he comes before, before his master and he starts making all these accusations of, Lord, I, I knew you to be this way. You're such an exacting man and you demand that which is, which is not yours. See, just imagine what this master and this Lord is like. And then just to show the illogical reasoning that he has, you would think if I knew, and he says that. Well, if you thought me to be this way, why didn't you do something like put the money to make at least get something back for it? So this one who has the appearance of possessing loses what he has. And then there's the, the other front of resistance and opposition. That is the rebellious enemies. Those who have sent the delegation behind this nobleman. Who sent the delegation saying in verse 14, we do not want this man to reign over us. And the picture is that this one has gone. He has received his kingdom and he's coming back. And now in verse 27, all those enemies, all those who stood in resistance against his rule, are going to be, in verse 27, bring them here and slay them in my presence. The, the revenge of this nobleman upon his declared enemies, brought to be slain before him. See, there is 
a day of reckoning. Some will deal with that day of reckoning as those who have all the outward appearance, all the, the false professions, all the outward deckings of being those who are awaiting the return of Christ. But when Christ returns, we find that in fact, they've not labored in anticipation of return. They've done nothing with the resources that God was supposedly had entrusted to them. They're outside Christ. And they have the appearance of being servants and slaves, loyal servants, but they're not. And so Christ comes and that which they have, they have many of those who labor within the context of the church and yet are still, still unconverted. Never experience the work of grace in their hearts. And as much as they have, have the appearance of being those who know Christ and love Christ, when Christ returns, they shall be revealed for what they are. There'll be no mistake in them. And the testimony is that once they, they stand before Christ, they have nothing to show for grace being in their heart. So there is no grace in their heart. That's one group. But then there are others who will stand before Christ, those who have just outright rejected the rule of Christ, those who insist they would have nothing to do with Christ, those who make... No apologies for the fact that we want nothing to do with Christianity. You don't want this man to rule over us. And Christ will come. And Christ will come of all of His glory and all of His power and all of His majesty. And the enemy is those who spoke so, so vitally, vitally and acted so vitally against Him will be crushed before Him. What do we do? Folks, in love, in love, we announce this revenge. We announce this coming revenge. We warn people. To warn people that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We evangelize. We testify of a Christ who is the judge of all men. Who is the true and the living God. He is the one before whom all men will stand. He is the one before whom every human will bow down and acknowledge He's Christ. That He's Lord. So would you do it now? In repentance and faith owning Him as your Lord and as your Savior? Or shall you wait until He returns in His vengeance and, and be crushed under His feet, compelled by His power, the sheer force of His power, to acknowledge this one is Christ, this one is God, and then to be cast into hell? In love, we announce the reality. You know, we've been accused in years past, especially in Baptist circles, of being hellfire and brimstone preachers. And I think we need a little bit of that, don't we? Oh, just talk about this thing about judgment. It's there. It's there. To those who are mere professors of Christ, who might have all the outward appearance of being among those who, who labor and anticipate Christ's return, the word to you would be to make your calling and election sure. Do not be presumptuous. Make sure. To be honest before God, be open before God, say, Lord, if these things, if these things be, be if I be deceived in my own heart, in your kindness and in your mercy, open my eyes to see before it's too late. Let me see it now, not then, when my destiny is already decided. Examine your hearts. Paul's church word to the church at Corinth. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. And then those who are rejectors of Christ, to word of warning to his listeners, do not boast in your arrogance. Do not boast in your and your self-deception. Do not boast in your apparent pride that you have no need of such a one as Jesus Christ. What you need to do would be to pray for His mercy. Pray for His mercies. See, all, all humanity will acknowledge that Jesus as Lord. His name above every name. So how are we preparing? Are we preparing well? 
for Christ and His coming kingdom. Do we delight in acknowledging Christ's rule? He is Lord, confessing Him. He is Lord of all the earth, of all things. To live, to labor in anticipation of His turn, knowing that of His return, that one day He shall return, and I shall give an account before Him. And to be a good steward of that which He has entrusted to me as an individual. He has entrusted to me in the context of the local body, in the context of the family. And in love, announcing that His revenge is coming upon His enemies. Many outside Christ today, be warned. Be warned. There are those who are deceived. But there are those likewise who are the declared enemies of God, but the result is the same. Either in Christ or you're outside. May we as the people of God be faithful and preparing ourselves but also preparing others as we share Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your amazing grace, Your amazing love to us. And Lord, we have to acknowledge that we have been anything but faithful. And we ask, Father, for Your forgiveness. Lord, that we've not lived our life as though Christ reigns. That we've lived in so much of a defensive, hunkered down in our, in our bunkers and hope the bombs of hell don't come against us. And yet the picture you give to us is an advancing church, a victorious church. Lord, we confess that we've not been faithful. We've not been good stewards of that to which you have entrusted us. And Lord, surely we have failed grievously that we have not in love proclaimed the message of a vengeful Christ to a world outside him. Lord, we need wisdom. We need grace. We need your passion. Help us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.